Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio. Swana Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa. My name is Anki Antaram with guest co-host Chris Atamian, and we welcome you to our show this afternoon. Our shows can be found in the archives at kpfk.org, as well as wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Swana Region Radio. Chris? As far back as Homer's Iliad, Poets have chronicled the wars of men. Pound, Larkin, Whitman, Rilke, E.E. E. Cummings, more recently, Ocean Vuong. With his 2020 history of forgetfulness, Shahim Ankarian has written what one critic hailed as definitive verse about the Lebanese civil war. Mankarian delivers wartime Beirut from the eyes of a child, the day-to-day horror of sectarian battle, the family violence, and ultimate descent into barbarity but also surprising acts of goodness, a message of hope from deep within the abyss. We are honored to be joined by Shahed Mankirian. Shahed, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ankine and Christopher. Thank you. This is an honor. Please read for us your poem, Educating the Sun. Well, Educating the Sun opens the book. It's the first poem in the book. And this was written maybe 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more. And I was doing my graduate work at Cal State Los Angeles. And this was one of the poems that I wrote in that class. It's in meter. So uh, definitely you will feel a rhythm in the poem. It's called Educating the Sun. I got my schooling at the morgue, a summer job my mother thought would keep the streets out of her son. It was a booming business, death. This was 1975. The civil war was brewing and morticians needed a better help. I was in charge of clipping nails. Old toes and fingers had to look pristine. With rubbing alcohol and cotton balls, I cleaned and washed dry blood from children with no legs, from men who went to work at dawn and never found their way back home their faces like shoes with no soles. I smiled because I didn't know another way to deal with shock. Some afternoons I sat on slabs of marble, eating feta cheese on moldy bread and watching wives identifying faceless men as mates and mothers who like doves descended slowly on their son's decapitated corpses. Then I wondered if my mother would look for me when the evening came. Would she remember that I was her only son and that I cleaned boys my own age? I witnessed death before I could live. Mother, stay awake. Don't look for him among the dead. He lives, he lives, he lives. That's such a powerful poem. It's beautiful. I think this is one of the best first books of poetry that I've read in a long time. And it, it, it evokes so many different experiences and feelings. This first poem you read about addresses the question of being a child and the relationship to the mother. And tell us how you experienced the war and its horrors as a child, per se. Audrey Hepburn described the hardships that her family and country experienced at the hands of the Nazis during World War II when they were bombing. But she said, you know, children remain children. And so she had a fun time in spite of it and managed to find joy during those times. What was your experience? 
Yeah, I, I think I adapted or we adapted as a family uh, very fast to what was going on around us. You know, there were moments of horror and there, there were long periods of lull. There was, you know, quiet. And we went back to our regular lives of going to school, then going to work, my dad going to work, my mom having friends over. And then things would escalate again. And remember, I'm a child. I'm not following the news the way my parents are following the news. So I don't know when the next wave is coming. Right. So it was very interesting where you wake up one morning and your dad or your mom would tell you, we're not going to school today. Or the night before you would start hearing bombings or bullets starting to rat tat tat in the distance. And you just realize, okay, the next day we're going to stay home, which for most of us was a day to celebrate because you don't want to go to school and you want to hang out in the building or in the, in the lobby or in the parking lot around the corner. So we made the best of it. And again, I mean, it was a great childhood, which people are surprised when they hear me say, I grew up in a civil war and had a great childhood. But then in retrospect, you also realize, hey, wait a minute. No, it wasn't because we were dealing with so much horror and we witnessed death at a young age. Uh, it's like I don't think bombardment day, a snow day, right? I right, mean, right. It's crazy. Uh, um, how old were you about 10 years old at the time? When the war started, I was eight years old. Uh, by the time we left Lebanon, I was 12. So it's that very formative age where you're just learning about love and you're learning about the death and what a way to get educated of all those realities of life. And, and I think, Shahir, we see those realities in your poems and through the stories that you tell. Now, war and poetry are not necessarily the most obvious bedfellows, but you've done a superb job of telling the story of a nation, Lebanon torn apart by civil war through its victims, the untold stories. If I remember correctly, Shahir, you said you started writing these poems 10 years ago. Why do you think you started writing at that time so many years later? When I started my graduate work at Cal State LA, my professor was Dr. Steele. And one of the things that early on I started gravitating toward was, I need to tell a story. And he was advocate of going back and finding nuggets of stories that you think it's important to you. And I never thought of writing about the war. When I was growing up as a poet, I almost had pushed that reality in the background it was, it was in my subconscious and that's very much apparent of a lot of kids or a lot of individuals who have survived war it's not something that you readily want to talk about our grandparents did not talk about the genocide you had to probe into getting that story out of them otherwise they wouldn't sit around the table and say hey remember during you know 1915 this no they kept that very quiet very hidden and I think these stories were very much quiet and hidden within me. I just had to unlock them. And when I start unlocking, and I remember it was during the summer that I had to write a lot of the poems in this book. Uh, it was very difficult. It was hot, I remember. Pasadena was hot. I grew up in Pasadena after I came to America. And it was hot. I was in a garage. I'd converted my mom's, our house garage into a place to work. And there was no AC in there. And it was one of those days where I was writing. And this first poem, I remember this little boy came to me almost in that moment of 
uh, delirium, let's say. And this little boy kept wanting this story to be told about going into the morgue and cleaning boys at his own age and witnessing death at a very young and it, I couldn't let go. I kept going at it. And I want to tell this story of this little boy. And this little boy eventually morphed into me going through the war. I've been getting a lot of emails or text messages saying, did you really go through all this? The word all this, not necessarily all of it, because a lot of it was maybe unkiness story that I borrowed or somebody else while I was having coffee and they went through the civil war and they were telling me stories about you know, running away in a taxi and the sniper shot at them. And that story, when being told to me, became my story somehow, and it became transferred into the book. So did I witness everything in this book? Yes, and some of it, no. But some of it happened through people that are very close to me. Um, I mean, if I can follow up on that, I mean, the poems are about traumatic experiences, most of them. Um, how do you go back to the experience itself? Like when you um, are writing a poem, right? Um, how do you come out of it, go back to it? What's the experience of remembering and forgetting? Um, and is it a catharsis? And, you know, I think you, you, in a sense, were lucky to have this talent as a writer because I know people that lived through the war that um, really didn't have a, pro a way of processing and were very badly affected, like didn't um, integrate as well as you seem to have done in America? Okay, so the writing process for me is, and Ankina knows this, I write regularly. Weekly, I sit down and I want to tell a story. And part two of it is I like telling stories through my poetry. A lot of the contemporary poets usually deal with images, but that's, that's all it is. I feel like it's one image after another. I like telling stories through my poems. And Again, a lot of these moments come to me when I'm sitting down every Sunday morning to write. Uh, a lot of the, I, I spend a lot of time being quiet just to listen to what I'm I sort of list, getting in touch to what's, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. Maybe I've read something in the news, especially Lebanon being in the news a lot lately. I might see a photograph posted somewhere and those images start coming back and I... Um, start remembering my childhood and sometimes I just sit there and I think which story did I not tell yet there's always a story that we forget to tell and I it, it all starts from that moment and again sometimes when I'm driving that that week from work to home or home to work a line comes to me a sentence comes to me that wouldn't let go and I keep that sentence is with me throughout the week and if I'm not forgetting that sentence that tells me something that, that I need to write about whatever that sentence is going to be. me. Sometimes that sentence might disappear in the poem, but uh, it starts uh, from a point of a sentence, a word, an image. And then I try to tell a story through that. Now, Shaha, you don't assign blame in your book. You empathize equally with all factions, Muslims, Druze, and Christians. They were also in Lebanon and other outside powers, such as the Syrians, Israelis, the PLO. How did your experience of war color your hopes for the future of humanity, a world with or without war? And how did it shape you, your view of humanity, seeing violence at a such young age? 
Yeah, good question, Ankine. Again, writing from a child's perspective, as a child, I don't think I knew the difference of who's fighting with who. I mean, I'm sure my father sat me down and, or maybe he didn't, told us that, you know, there are the Palestinians, the Christians, the Armenians, the Syrians, the uh, Israelis. I'm sure he was telling us all these stories, but for us, it didn't make any difference. We just knew that people were fighting. And we were trying to make sense of why they were fighting. And as a child, it doesn't make sense. And the sad thing about children is that they start imitating war. They go in the streets and they make their own little guns and they start, you know, creating their own war, um, which is something that was so extraordinary. When I came to Los Angeles or Pasadena and I started going to school here, one of the first shocking things that I experienced was nobody was playing war with one another on the playground. And that was interesting to me because back in Beirut, we were as kids in the parking lot somewhere. We were all hiding from each other playing war because we were imitating the adults. But who were these adults? We, I don't think we knew. And I don't think I care as a, as a writer of these poems. Uh, it's more important for me to make, show the reader the, the stupidity of war that men fight for a small piece of land or philosophical differences or religious differences. Um, and I, I don't want to point fingers at all in the book um, because as a child, you're pure and you don't understand that. You stay true to the child self, basically. Absolutely. Instead of asking the questions of who are we as humanity and are we good or bad? That well, I mean... If humanity thought more like children, you know, we've heard this before that we wouldn't go to war with one another. And I like to show that purity as much as I can. And there are a lot of poems, not a lot, quite a few poems in there where the adult poet is talking, uh, but mostly it's the child's perspective. And I've always enjoyed books, either novels or poetic works that are written from the children's perspective, because through those poems, the child sort of, it's the rite of passage. They come to understanding about what it is to be eventually a young adult. Uh, so uh, that's the exercise of these poems also. Well, I would like to remind our listeners that you're listening to Swan Origin Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, and worldwide on kpfk.org. I am Ankini Antaran. My co-host is Chris Atamyan, and we are with Shahe Mankaryan. We are discussing his book, History of Forgetfulness. Shahe, can you please read The Last Mask? Yeah, The Last Mask is one of my favorites in the book. Um, again, this is, a, this is an example of what you, we were talking about, where we are a group of kids playing hide and go seek in, in a mosque. And at no time are we feeling that we, we don't belong in this space. So, and again, the tragedy of war definitely seeps into the poem. The last mosque. When we heard the planes approaching from the distance, Avo yelled in Armenian, you guys come out, the planes. He couldn't finish his sentence. We heard the first bomb explode near the bridge. I slid behind the curtain that smelled of mildew and urine. 
I didn't want to come out. The stained windows rattled. During hide and seek, they always targeted me first. I didn't want to be found. Come out, Abo yelled. I'm not playing anymore. No one moved. In this abandoned house of worship, all five of us found a corner. Allah will protect us, I thought. Bombs won't destroy a minaret. Avo kept begging, guys, come out, please. It's not funny anymore. No one moved. The explosion set off sirens and car alarms. Allah is with us. Allah is with us. The mosque was our hiding place, even though I was a good Christian boy. The final explosion silenced everything, even Avo's voice. Several years before her untimely death in 1983, the poet Nada Twini said, Beirut has died a thousand times and been reborn a thousand times. Is Lebanon somehow emblematic of war in general and a human condition? And do you interpret this to mean that Lebanon is emblematic of humanity's destructiveness or that on the contrary, come even the worst of wars, we humans will survive and rebuild? And I know that's a little philosophical, but how do you, how do you see the, in retrospect, this event and what it means? I mean, <laughs> such a, difficult question in a sense you know you're lebanon is such a small country uh, and surrounded by these immense powers uh, and in the this little tiny country like a almost like a biblical sense david against goliath it, it constantly over this decades we've seen uh, dealing with tragedies over and over again tries to rise up like fin- phoenix and then it just goes back in and it's watching it. And the, the most difficult part is from watching it from the diaspora, watching it from outside, uh, this little tiny going into these moments of hysteria and then finding itself blossoming and then going back into the quicksand again. Uh, and then you're trying to pull it out. Um, it's been such a difficult process, just being a Lebanese Armenian, watching from the distance, watching this country constantly. Uh, struggle, rebirth, go back into this mire again. They are definitely, Lebanese people are resilient people. We know that. We've seen them rebuild the country over and over again. And every time they rebuild, it becomes more beautiful than before. Yet, they it almost feels like you're watching this child that doesn't learn from their mistake. You know, they keep going back to the fire and they try to touch that fire to see what's going to happen. I don't know. Ankine has been through this as well. She's been watching this country over as long as I have probably and noticing, you know, the mistakes that it makes as a child. And you try to think, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you just making the same mistakes again? Uh, why doesn't the government learn from its mistakes? Why do we keep electing these people who have no business running a government? And, you know, it's a very democratic country. It's, uh, you know, they vote and they try to have equality of sects and religions, and they respect sects and religions on some level. And you constantly see them, you know, 
you can they can create this beautiful democracy and then it just collapse. Uh, so I don't know, Ankina, what's your thought on this? I mean, you've been well. I have covered Lebanon a lot. We have done right. several shows, and I think if you if you go back and listen to our podcast, some of those questions are answered as to why we don't have a functioning government in Lebanon. But you know, Shahi, I was very touched last night when I was reading your book and that poem about Carantina, which uh, I don't think we have time to read right now. Uh, it's a shanty town of basically immigrants or um, homeless people who literally they were homeless. They didn't have a home. Uh, whether they were pushed out from Jordan or they were pushed out from uh, Israel or they were pushed out from Syria, this was their starting point. And Carantina, and I found out from Ankina that it was very close. You guys were very close to Carantina, location-wise. Well, we were not uh, as uh, so. It wasn't that we were close as uh, the refugees after the massacre there. Those who survived escaped. Oh. They came to us mm. because my father was the principal of its school. Uh, they stayed uh, for a long At time in our school. So we got to meet them and they told us the stories, the horrific stories of right. the massacres. According to your poem, you were actually watching it burn. Well, Carantina was walking distance from our house. I mean, it's literally maybe a mile, mile and a half from where we lived. Uh, and the dichotomy between where we lived and Carantina was immense. I mean, our area was beautiful buildings. And then you just walked a few blocks toward the toward the sea, Mediterranean Sea, and Carantina was uh, situated, situated right there. And you're right, the horrific stories that we heard, the bombing and the burning of Carantina. And then the day after, like people went there like tourists just to watch the dead uh, walk, you know, they took pictures with the dead. They, it was this horrific experience as a child learning that a mile from your house, this horrendous, massacre happened, uh, massacre of the innocents. I mean, these people were there and they were used to, they were massacred to make a point from the flangists. Um, and again, coming, you know, hearing the, hearing the stories and like you heard the stories and, or my father telling the stories or friends on the streets, did you hear, you know, decapitated heads or this and that? Um, yeah, I mean, it was horrific and uh, it was very close. The burning, the smell of the dead, um, very fresh. And that kind of uh, death and destruction tourism was very common during wartime. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, I grew up in New York City, but my father is also Lebanese. He's um, Zahletzi from Zahletzi. Oh, wow. Um, and my, my cousins lived through the Civil War. They were in, in well, not Shafiyeh. But um, I did want to follow up before, but this is a good opportunity to do it. The, the experience of Armenians in Lebanon is even more interesting and tragic in a way because, you know, they were refugees. But I know that during the war, they tried to have their own militia but to stay out of it, basically not to take sides with the Maronites or the Muslims. But the history, the history lesson is you can't. You know, they, they ended up losing lives and being traumatized as well. Um, right. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a very interesting. We we were almost like the in between people, and you didn't want to take sides because, I mean, interestingly enough, my father was from Palestine, and they escaped Palestine, came to Lebanon, came to Beirut, 
uh, during the 48 war. And then uh, they established the life in Beirut, hoping that this is the last stop. And then sort of a couple of decades later, they were, they went through the civil war again. And then you had to leave your country again, go somewhere else. Uh, and my father used to always say, I hope this is our last stop. I hope this is our last stop. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I can't imagine the lives of the Armenians and the lives of my family where, you know, from the genocide, you move to Palestine, to Haifa. From Haifa, you go to Beirut. From Beirut, you, you migrate to Los Angeles constantly in this uh, move. And uh, I was telling my daughter the other day that my my grandfather was born in Hajin, died in Beirut. My father was born in Haifa, died in Los Angeles. They never, they were born somewhere, died completely somewhere different. Right. Uh, and hope, and I was born in Beirut. Now I'm in Los Angeles. So I'm, I tell my daughter, I hope you live and experience. you don't move somewhere else or you don't get forced out of a country uh, so that you don't enjoy where you were born. But, you know, maybe on a semi-positive note, I was reading somewhere that the cosmopolitan experience, which used to be Jewish quintessentially in the West, is now everyone's experience. And maybe this is, you know, everyone now, the Indians, the people from Africa, everyone's been moving generation by generation. So maybe this is one of the reasons that Armenians are able to do well um, and survive because they're, they know how to pack up and start again. Right, right. I mean, I mean, again, but the, the caveat is the fact that when you're moving, you want to move up on your own volition. You want to move right, versus course. being forced out of a place that you loved and enjoyed. You had friends and family and you had to say goodbye to them and uh, that whole experience of letting go somewhere that meant so much to you. Very sweet, yeah. Shahe, can I ask you to read your poem, The Ninth? Yeah, The Ninth is another uh, favorite of mine. Is because definitely it captures my father, how he raised us. He was a man, a very conflicting individual, uh, very domineering in so many ways. Uh, and then in so many ways, I owe so much to him, the introduction to music and literature came from him. Uh, he played uh, classical music at all times of the day, if possible. And he gave us books. He, there were always books in our house, uh, mostly Armenian, but number of uh, English books as well. We had a library, which was rare. None of my friends had that when I used to go to their houses, or they didn't have that experience of listening to music, classical music, especially. Uh, so Beethoven was a huge uh, presence in our house. Uh, we listened to Beethoven a lot. Um, and the Beethoven's ninth, ninth particularly left an impact on me because it's so out of the ordinary. You know, you start this very symphonic and then it just turns into this beautiful choir, bombastic and in so many ways. And it sort of like symbolizes the war in Beirut. It's so, it doesn't make sense how this man wrote this. Uh, it doesn't follow the norms of uh, what other composers were doing and uh, sort of like uh, plays off of what happened in Lebanon too. It, nothing made sense for us. So it, ninth, the remaining window in the living room rattled the first time father played Beethoven's ninth. In Beirut, bombs shattered glass panels 
and fathers tape plastic sheets on every splintered pane. I didn't hear the guttural bang of the timpani. Clashing cymbals didn't symbolize the fiery arrows of Ares. Low flying jets coined the claim. I didn't care for the bombastic choir. They drowned the rat-tat-tat of M16s. I sifted through the noise like a deaf beggar sifting through trash and discovering flashy pomegranates. That's how I discovered the French horns, so lonely and lost, buried deep in Beethoven's ninth. Thank you, Shahe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ankine. Shahe Mankarian is a poet and the author of History of Forgetfulness. He's also an educator by profession and currently serves as principal of St. Gregory Hovsepian School in Pasadena, California. He's widely published in poetry journals and blogs, and for a decade, from 2008 to 2018, he co-directed the Los Angeles Writing Project at California State University, Los Angeles. Special thanks to Shahe Mankarian. The book, again, is History of Forgetfulness. A special thanks to Saraya Zarouk and to Sandown Gray. All Swanar shows are archived on kpfk.org. Just search for Swanar Radio. Our podcasts are posted on anchor.fm forward slash Swana or on Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. On behalf of the Swana Radio Collective, I am Ankina Antaram with guest co-host Chris Atamian. Thank you. <laughs>